Jack Cacciarella. And I'm Aaron Harness. And this is Zoomed In. On this week's episode of Zoomed In, Aaron and I start off by hitting the headlines, talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and some hypocrisy coming out of Virginia from Governor Glenn Youngkin. After that, Aaron and I have an awesome interview with Massachusetts State Senate candidate Sidney Levin Epstein. And we finish up, as we always do, with Tweets of the Week. So, Aaron, let's go ahead and hop in right now, hit these headlines. Let's go ahead and zoom in. Yeah, let's do it, Jack. And let's let's talk about the biggest headline of the week, which is what's happening over in Eastern Europe uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Now, the viewer, those of you who are listening, I mean, what we talk about today might be a little old news by the time you're listening, but it's still yeah. pretty significant because as of today, Russia has officially invaded Ukraine. Now, Russia hasn't invaded the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, but it has um, earlier today, uh, Vladimir Putin announced that uh, two independent regions in eastern Ukraine, which were previously known as occupied regions, um, the Luhansk and Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine, um, have now been recognized as independent states by the Russian government. And the Russian government uh, has announced a, quote, peacekeeping mission uh, to keep the peace in these regions, which it is not a peacekeeping re- mission. It is uh, a full-scale invasion because Russian troops are now going into these regions, which are part of Ukraine, um, thereby interrupting the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine. Um, so it needs to be called out for what it is. It is an invasion. Um, it is nothing. There's nothing different between what they did in 2014 in Crimea versus what they're doing now in 2022. And I will say this, um, everything that they're doing right now is prep preparing for a full-scale invasion of the capital and other major cities in Ukraine. We saw this in 2008 in Georgia. Um, Russia, the Russian forces did something very similar. We saw it in 2014 with Crimea, um, and we're seeing it again now. Um, and the United States and Western countries need to step up, need to issue crippling sanctions on the Russian economy and the Russian government and oligarchs. Um, and mm. hopefully that will deter them from moving forward. But all signs point to a full-scale invasion right now. And, and Aaron, you said this, and I'm going to restate it, that this may seem like a dated episode by the time Wednesday morning comes. And so this is an escalating situation. Updates are happening all the time. Um, I believe President Biden has begun, uh, has begun signing executive orders. Um, sanctions are incoming, uh, mm-hmm. and we're continuing to get more information. But what I think we can address right now, what we do need to talk about, is the Republican response to what's going on. So what have we seen from the right and their support of Putin? Well, I mean, I think that it depends on where in the right you've seen this. And it's not, and it's mostly the far right and also the far left. You see it in both. And both are, far left is doing it a little differently than the far right, but they both approach this in this America first approach that we need to take care of America first and not care about our allies overseas. Now, the far left believes that, um, in the true American first approach in that we shouldn't be involving ourselves in these endless wars and wars in other countries because that is not America's problem. Whereas the far right led by like Tucker Carlson, Rand Paul and those those folks are not doing it to necessarily say, hey, we need to focus on things at home. They're more saying that, why are we even bothered with what's happening in Ukraine? Why are they saying, why do we care that a democracy is under attack? Because they, they disregard democracy. Um, and, I, and I think that's an important distinction to draw um, when we're talking about this. What else, what, what do you expect to see from, you know, maybe a Josh Hawley or a Matt Gates as, you know, Congress tries to unite uh, in, in 
agreement on what our next step should be uh, moving forward. Well, the good thing is, is that we don't need Josh Hawley's vote or Matt Gates's vote. Uh, we have a bipartisan Congress here. This is a bipartisan effort to impose sanctions on Russia and the Russian government. Um, I think the majority, 85% of the Congress believes in that. Um, so it, it, we have a veto-proof majority, which is fantastic. Um, and, and I really, I, I'm really happy that there is this bipartisan effort. I, I just hope that the United States government does not uh, let Russia just walk into Ukraine um, without significant, significant sanctions, significant repercussions. I mean, I've been personally calling on uh, NATO to uh, admit Ukraine slowly but surely. I, I, I understand the potential ramifications of it, but I think that Ukraine is an important ally to the United States. Um, back in the, uh, in the 1990s, when we asked Ukraine to give up its nuclear capabilities, we promised Ukraine that we would protect it uh, from Russian invasion and from um, invasions of other countries. Uh, and we need a hold of our end of that bargain, um, uh, that end of the deal, because if we don't, if we allow Russia to invade Ukraine right now and take Ukraine, there's nothing that's gonna stop Russia from taking Moldova, Latvia, Estonia, Poland. Um, and then even if it wants to moving further east, I, I mean, sorry, further west, um, they, the Russian military is stronger than any military in the world outside of China and the United States. Russia can easily take over all of Europe. If it wanted to, it would be a bloody, costly war, but it can be done. Um, and at what point do we stand up and say, you have to stop? Is it after Ukraine? Is it after Moldova, Estonia? When is it? Um, so it, we need to put our, uh, this invasion of Eastern Ukraine needs to be the line. Um, it, it can't go any further. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree. And you know, pivoting to uh, another headline that we've seen that's kind of not been covered as, as much as I think it should have, An another you know, someone not holding up their end of a deal. So Governor Glenn Youngkin on the campaign trail, all he wanted to talk about was critical race theory, critical race theory, protecting schools, protecting children, mask mandates, all that. That was his general message. And, and, and he said that because he said, you know, uh, we need teachers to be better equipped to do so on and such, and parents should be deciding what's happening in schools, and acted like he cared. And now we're seeing that in Virginia, Republicans are proposing a budget bill that would cut hundreds of millions of dollars in spending from mm -hmm. Virginia public schools. And, yeah. and, and, and in no way, I don't see how you can spin that as protecting kids in public schools or trying to support teachers or parents. It doesn't, and it's and it's a full. They're using this because the Republican Party's mantra is not to fund public schools. They are very anti-public school. They are very um, pro-private, pro-charter, pro-religious institutions. Which I'm not saying any of those are wrong. I think those are all great schools. But I think we do need to invest in our public schools. And what Glenn Youngkin is doing is very similar to what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida and other Republican-led legislatures are doing around the country. Is that they're using. COVID-19 restrictions uh, as a way to defund public education. Um, and they're trying to say, look, they did so many bad things, forcing your kids to wear masks. Therefore, we should just get rid of public schools completely. Because right now, even though um, they're just all in Virginia, what they're trying to do is limit the amount of investment in public education. What's next? They, nothing stops them from fully defunding public education as Governor Youngkin's term continues. And Jack, you saw today uh, a poll came out that showed that Governor Youngkin was actually a majority of Virginians disapprove of his uh, work. I think it's 43% disapproved, 41% approved. And, and, and I'm not surprised. 
It's only been about a month into his tenure. None of us are surprised. Yeah. And you know, that's, and, and I think the, the, how rapid that, uh, you know, it was, it was quick. People just, just did not like Glenn Young and his, his approval rating fell underwater. And the fact that it's only been a month is significant. Like it, it is significant. You usually get a period of leniency, you know, as you're passing your first, you know, you're signing your first executive orders as governor, you're beginning to put forth your legislative agenda and Virginians already hate it, which, you know, is if we're going to spin this in the only positive way you really can. I have said this before, Glenn Youngkin is a great reminder of why you need to be voting in every single election, up ballot, down ballot, every time you need to show up. And that is a great segue into the interview that we are about to have, Massachusetts State Senate candidate, Sydney Levin Epstein. Um, She is a Democrat running in Massachusetts and we are so excited to have her on. So let's go to that interview right now. Let's do it, This week on the Zoomed In podcast, we could not be more excited to bring on a wonderful candidate running for a Massachusetts State Senate seat. Sydney Levin Epstein is joining us on the Zoomed In podcast. Thank you so much for coming, and we and, and we are so excited to have you. Well, thank you, Jack and Aaron, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Sydney, I want to just jump right in and talk about your candidacy. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about your background. So why don't you tell our listeners uh, who is Sydney uh, and, and why are you running for office? I grew up behind the counter of my family's sporting goods store on Route 9 in Hadley, Mass, where we saw big box stores move in, which jacked up the price of our rent, making it almost impossible to afford health care. So when we made the difficult decision to close our stores, we had to figure out what to do next. Um, so I went to Springfield Technical Community College for a year before transferring to George Washington University, where I served in Congressman Neal and Senator Markey's offices in the 114th, 115th, and 116th congressional sessions. I returned home to help elect Senator Eric Lesser, who is now the outgoing state senator in the seat as he pursues his bid for lieutenant governor. And I'm running because I am concerned with how many young people are leaving this area, which is the Pioneer Valley, Western Massachusetts. We are raised here, we are educated here, and we are not buying homes here. And with West East Rail and better jobs, so I'm not talking about Amazon warehouse facilities, I'm talking about jobs that keep people here, that provide health insurance and sustainable forms of income, we'll see a drastic change to our economy. I think that's awesome, Sydney, and I think that more people need to run, more young people need to run for office, especially. Um, I want to talk, so you worked for um, Ed Markey um, on the Hill. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how your work on the Hill, both on the House side and the Senate side, kind of prepared you to be a legislature in the the, uh, Massachusetts State Senate? Working on constituent relations was an incredible way to understand what it means to be a public servant. It is not a matter of a name on the door. You know, our leaders in those offices, whether it's Congressman Neal or Senator Markey, it's our job as staff to learn how to support the constituents that we serve. So during my time in Senator Markey's office, I oversaw the civilian and military constituent communications, fielding thousands of calls and foreign policy letters weekly to help serve our constituents in that understanding and work 
led me to have a deep passion for elective politics, understanding how it can be transformational and have sustainable change for our communities, recognizing that that work begins at the grassroots level. And so you're just now getting out on the campaign trail. You're you're talking to voters. Um, you're shaking hands, having having I'm assuming a great time out there, spreading this incredible message. What have you been hearing um, from voters? What what are they telling you that is is keeping you going in this race? And what what is centering your focus from what you're hearing? This past weekend was the first big voter contact weekend. We were gathering signatures to secure my name on the ballot, which I'm very proud to share that with a fantastic team across nine towns and three cities, we collected 300 signatures. Um, and they, yeah, I'm so happy. I'm so proud and thankful. The reason I'm thankful is I. it's a disorienting level of gratitude to have volunteers and friends stand in front of grocery stores in a blizzard to do this. Um, and what I'm gathering on the ground to answer your question, Jack, is this feeling of how necessary it is for young people to run. Every interaction my friends and volunteers had this weekend was, how old is she? Wow, <laughs> like you know, it, it was so wonderful to meet voters who felt instantly connected to me because I am a young woman running for office in a world where the barriers for entry for young women, first-time candidates and people of color are brick walls. Mm. And to be able to knock those down and have meaningful interactions with voters and friends and even folks living outside the district we might have come across, it was so meaningful um, and is why I don't don't have a voice right now for how hoarse I sound. Well, congratulations. I think uh, that, that is really awesome, awesome news. And we can't wait to see you on the ballot in November. I'm sure many in Massachusetts can't wait as well. So that's amazing. Um, but you mentioned something that I, something, something that I really want to talk about, and that's the brick walls that, that young people face and um, first-time candidates, uh, candidates of color face when they kind of get on the ballot or just run for office in general. And a lot of times people, I mean, they're for everyone that says, wow, that's amazing. A young person's running for office. There's always that one that's like, well, you need some more experience. Uh, you, you need to wait your turn. Uh, so what's your response to those people? I mean, that eye roll is <laughs> yeah, too, so. <laughs> this is a podcast you might not have seen. Uh, the eye roll that is telling of how all young people in politics feel. It is, are you serious? I, I am putting in this effort. I know that young people, and this is 100% the case for you, Sydney, no one works harder and, and gets less gratitude in their community than young people who are investing and who are the future, and that is you. So that eye roll, if you're, if you're watching, you saw it. If you're listening, you may, maybe you felt it because it is true. I am around the same age that the outgoing state senator was when he first filed to run for office. And the questions that I've received regarding my candidacy are wildly more sexist than what he faced at that time just about a decade ago. Within my first few days of launching, I was pulled aside at two different events, the first one told me I looked too Polish. The second time I was pulled aside, I had my hair in a ponytail telling me I looked too grungy. <sighs> what I'm facing as a first time candidate and as a young woman running for candidate is much more about my appearance, which I stopped caring about this past weekend. I let it go because I am so focused on how 
I can serve my community in this office. I encourage all first-time candidates and all young candidates to focus on their why. Oftentimes, we get caught up in these narratives of what I'm supposed to look like, how I'm supposed to dress, how I'm supposed to sound. But at the end of the day, I'm running for office because I have the experience to govern. I know how to legislate and I can negotiate funding well to secure that money is brought back home to the community that raised me. Absolutely. And and when you, because we know you will, when you are elected and on that, on that first day in office, what is the what is the piece of policy that you were going to be most focused on passing? Well, Jack, your words to Moses' ears, please, because um, we're going to work hard to get there. But the hill I will die on is West East Rail. I live 90 minutes outside of Boston. And if I lived in New Jersey or Connecticut and I was 90 minutes outside of Boston, my property value would be higher. I'd be able to commute into Manhattan. I could go into Jersey City with my friends for dinner. You know, the way that we see transportation can change our lives lives and it can change the community. I am going to enter Beacon Hill and fight like hell to ensure that communities west of Framingham, west of Worcester for that matter, are no longer forgotten and we can extend that train to Springfield. This will drastically change the economy, increase property values, and also provide a way of life to keep young people living here if they want to live here by accessing the economic boom of Boston. I love that. Um, and I, I think that's an issue that not, not many people are talking about, not, not many people even really know about. So, so it's really awesome that you're running on that. Now, Massachusetts is arguably a very democratic state, but it did have a, and it currently does have a Republican governor. Um, so when you are gonna be in the legislature, you are gonna have to work with the Republican party to get things done. Um, e- even if the Republican party of today, at least some folks in there, are very difficult to deal with. Um, So can you talk a little bit about how you are gonna reach across the aisle, kind of bridge that divide that we're currently facing and um, give real results to Massachusetts? As far as I'm concerned, transportation and economic development are bipartisan issues. I will take a heavily nuanced and policy focused and driven role as a state legislator. If I play party politics and games, I won't be able to serve my community. Bringing tax incentives or other incentives for the biotechnology boom that Kendall Square and Cambridge are seeing to bring their lab space. So let me explain, because this will make more sense for viewers outside of or listeners of this uh, zoomed in community rather um, outside of Boston. So here in Massachusetts, we are seeing a growth of the biotechnology sector. It's going to be the largest growing industry in Massachusetts. Cannabis has had their time. We don't need another dispensary. We need more lab space. What does Western Massachusetts have that Kendall Square and Cambridge doesn't have? lab space. We have old vacant mill buildings that need to be renovated and used. And I bring this as an example because as the state senator from the Hamden, Hampshire, Worcester district, I will work with these companies, with these venture capital groups that are focusing on investing in the technologies of tomorrow and bringing them to Western Massachusetts. That is a bipartisan issue. Keeping our UMass students, our Mount Holyoke students, their graduates who are already working on this technology in the region helps benefit our economy. 
that is a bipartisan, if a nonpartisan issue. And what I encourage other young people who are running for local and state office is focus on what your community needs and how you can serve those interests. Because oftentimes what's happening in Congress and the partisan politics of today, it annoys the it just annoys so many voters they don't want to fight with their neighbors here i'm seeing it on the ground people want to know what i'm actually going to do in this job not if i'm going to be fighting on capitol hill i'm going to be fighting for them on beacon hill absolutely and i fully agree with you now um that was going to be my last question but i i it just it triggered another question in my mind Uh, so with, with this biotech boom coming to Western Massachusetts, how are you as a legislature going to convince uh, a company to move from, say, Palo Alto um, to Western Massachusetts? So many ways, my friend. Look, here's the thing. <laughs> Western Massachusetts is home to the future. We have some of the greatest in, uh, academic universe, academic colleges and universities here, a world-class education. And for bringing people here, you already have a workforce ready to go. We have the space. We also have the future of jobs, green jobs here, the solar panel farms that are existing, our storage facilities for offshore wind energy that can be done here. I think encouraging people to see the 413 as the world of tomorrow, but that's just not it. I'm not focusing on pulling the outside world in. My focus here is saying for young people to have the opportunity to live here so they're not pushed out. So they have other opportunities and jobs to stay here if they want to stay here. Well, well, Sydney is, she's passionate. She's policy focused. She's not playing party politics. I don't know what more you could want out of a state senator. So Sydney, if no, the zoomed in Jack listeners, Jack sounds like a great surrogate for your campaign. <laughs> I, well, I absolutely, I'm team Sydney. I, I always have been. So if the zoomed in listeners who I, I'm assuming at this point are as well, want to support your campaign, what can they do? Please donate whatever you can. This race is expensive. And as a first-time candidate, soliciting contributions is is challenging. I have organizations that are standing by in their endorsements because they want to see how much money that I raise. I have donors standing by and giving me how much money I raise until I have these endorsements coming in. I am a ping pong, but this is a universal experience for first-time candidates in their first month of launching. So chip in whatever you can. Join Team Sydney. Help elect a young woman into office office who's going to fight like hell for the 413. That's awesome. And with that, Sydney, thank you so much for zooming in. Uh, I'm sure our Zoomers are going to love supporting your campaign. So thank you so much. It was great having you on. Thank you both. And now it's time for Tweets of the Week. Our first tweet comes from Harry Thomas talking about COVID, making a great observation. Harry says, it's pretty amazing that all these years, American parents have been following the no peanuts rule in schools even though their child doesn't have a peanut allergy. I think that should have been the protocol with COVID as well. Even though maybe you're not worried about getting it, you should be protecting other people. That was a great tweet from Harry. Our next tweet comes from Representative Eric Swalwell, who says, pause and think about what we've done as Democrats. COVID is on the ropes. Overwhelming majority of Americans are vaxxed and our smallest kids will be shortly. Mass requirements in responsible states are being lifted. We're coming out of this, and it's exciting to shape what's next. I'm excited. Excited to get things done. Our next tweet comes from Midas Touch. They say 96.75% of the 42 million jobs created since 1989 
occurred under Democratic presidents. Think about that. Democrats are better on the economy. Those are just the numbers. Can't argue with that. And our final tweet comes from our good friend and good friend of the pod, Harry Sisson. Harry says, reminder, Trump withheld military aid to Ukraine so he could try to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Pretty relevant now, huh? I, I could not agree more. I agree. The failures of Donald Trump continue to haunt us, and soon we will get past them. But for now, that was Tweets of the Week. That is our show. Thank you so much for tuning into the Zoomed In podcast. If you're listening right now on Apple, Google, or Spotify on Wednesday, thank you for listening to the show. And if you're catching us live on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, thank you so much for tuning in as well, um, watching the show, getting to see Aaron's beautiful face. We appreciate that. Um, and we'd also like to say a couple more thank yous, as we always do, to the brothers at Midas Touch for producing this podcast, for Adam Sultan, our editor, for making it happen every week. And thank you, Sydney Levin Epstein, for coming on an incredible interview. Um, Aaron, I, I thought this was a great episode. And if people people also think this is a great episode, where can they find you? Where, where can they tell you, you know, oh, I like this. This is a great conversation. Yeah, and all of my social media platforms at Aaron Parnas. Uh, what about you, Jack? You can find me on Twitter at JD Cocciarella. That's J-D-C-O-C-C-H-I-A-R-E-L-L-A. And on TikTok at Jack D. Cocciarella. Uh, this was an awesome episode of the Zoomed In podcast. We appreciate our Zoomed In listeners every week. This, pl- uh, this podcast is growing uh, and we appreciate y'all so much. So if you enjoy the show, spread the word, tell a friend, um, tweet at us, follow Zoomed In podcast on Twitter, and we will see you next Wednesday. Thank you for Zooming In. <laughs>